0: All right. How's it going? Are you sad that this is our last class on Donne, Or Are you happy? What do you? How do you feel? I'm just so tired. I don't feel anything. Tired from reading Byron, or just tired? Yeah, I'm just tired in general. <laughs> but, <laughs> how come? Oh, um, just a late night, early morning. Too much school, or more interesting things? Uh, I I'm in a show, so I have rehearsal going late, and then I have homework. Yeah. You but, don't you, it's great. All right, good. You look tired, too. No? Me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, same reasons? <coughs> I've been really sick all week. Oh, no. Yeah, everyone has. Um, are you totally better, Ben? Are you better? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Kevin. Kevin, I always do that. I know. It's the EM thing. <coughs> going on. Yeah. Um. a nagging that everyone. I wonder if Barbara's coming to ask her a question. Um, are we sad to be do- leaving Don Juan or happy? It's, it's good, but it's time. It's time. It's yeah. time for something else. <laughs> you agree, MJ? Yeah, I, well, I like, I like it. I wish we could read some more, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't think. Okay, well, what we're, what we're going to read next is very different. Um, but I still hope that you're, you're feeling that each canto is different, also. Um, so we're going to leave Juin um, in an interesting situation, um, and uh, you'll never know what happens with the Sultan's wife, with um, Gobias, and what happens. Well, you'll read it eventually, right? There's a right answer to this question in a class. doesn't have to be the truthful answer. There is a correct answer. So you'll read it eventually, right? Because if not, we could just do it in the class. We could skip Keats and keep doing Byron. No, I have friends for this. Okay, because you'll read it eventually, right? Okay. Um, I wanted to read you a letter that's not, um, should be, but isn't in the um, (coughs) um, Oxford version of Byron. He has a lot of good letters, a lot of interesting letters, but he also, strangely, he, McGann, the um, editor, Jerome McGann, um, leaves stuff out. Um, I think he partly partly doesn't put stuff in because he thinks, oh, everyone puts that in in their editions of Byron, and I'm going to do a different kind. Um, But it's not like everyone reads the other editions of Byron in a class in which this is the edition that's ordered. So, Anyhow, this is a letter to... um, um, Byron's agent um, and friend and person who took care of his money when he was in Italy. Remember, he went to Italy and never returned. Um, that's what he's describing at the end of *Child Harold*, as his last um, departure from England. But so, but he's publishing Don Juan, his publisher is in England. Um, he's making jokes about what's going on in English politics as well as all sorts of other politics. Did you guys get the joke about the courier and the courser um, about Sem- semiramis Do you remember this? Do you remember what semiramis the Egyptian um, queen, was particularly fond of sexually? Did we finish Canto V? Did we finish Canto V? All right, so Semiramis, um, now let's see if I can find this quickly, um, is, um, I think this must be around, no. Oh, good. So you did know. What is it, 60? Oh, yeah, 60. 60 itself. Um, so what was she so interested in? Babel was Nimrod's hunting box. So he's just said that... Um, he's actually quoted a great line from Horace about how pointless, um, gigantic, spectacular buildings are. Um, that all you're doing is um, building yourself a tomb. Um, And he says, you know, you would think that the story of the Tower of Babel, this is at 59, might teach them this much better than I'm able. That is the pointlessness of um, huge houses for human beings. Then he goes on about Babel. Babel was Nimrod's hunting box. And then, remember, Nimrod is a great hunter before the Lord in Genesis. And then a town of gardens, walls, and wealth amazing. Where Nebuchadnezzar, king of men, reigned Till one summer's day he took to grazing That is, he went mad and started eating grass That's the story of Nebuchadnezzar in um, the story of Daniel And Daniel tamed the lions in their den The people's awe and admiration raising Twas famous, too, for Thisbe and for Pyramus People know who they are from Midsummer Night's Dream, if nowhere else Twas famous, too, for Thisbe and for Pyramus and the calumniated queen Semiramis is how he's um, pronouncing it in his British way, Semiramis. Um, You may know the opera Semiramide, um, which is also about her. That injured queen, by chroniclers so coarse, has been accused, I doubt not, by conspiracy, of an improper friendship for her horse. Love, like religion, sometimes runs to heresy. So what would an improper friendship for her horse be? Yes. Also like Catherine the Great. Um, So, yeah, an improper friendship for her horse. That's a hilarious way of putting it. Um, Because, of course, whatever it is that um, her relation to her horse is, it's not friendship. You would talk about an improper friendship for your valet, maybe. Um or for, you know, someone who um, you could conceivably be friends with, but this friendship has become improper. Um, But improper friendship for a horse, not so much. Um, Love, like religion, sometimes runs to heresy. That is, having sex with your horse would be a heretical version of love. This monstrous tale had probably its source for such exaggerations here, and someone do the rhyme? Say it. Read the line. For such exaggerations. Yeah, rhyming with heresy and conspiracy. For such exaggerations here and there I see. In writing coarser by mistake for courier, I wish the case could come before a jury here. A jurier. Um So what's a coarser? Courser. Yeah, a courser is a is a horse that runs, someone who um, uh, from the from the word to run in um, where we also get our word current or race course. The reason a race course is a race course is that's where horses run around. So a courser is someone who is a horse who runs around a race course. And a courier. Messenger? Yeah, a messenger. Um so the um someone simply mistakes the I for an S, writes S when they should be writing I. And so the implication is what probably happened back way back then is that um, Se- Semiramis, I'm trying to do it in Byron's way, that Semiramis um, had an improper friendship with a courier, with a messenger, not with a horse. Now what Byron's actually alluding to is... Um, a scandal that was occurring in England, which is that um, the George the Fourth, or George the Fourth about to be, um, was involved in a separation from his wife, who was accused of having an improper relationship with a courier. Um, that is, that she was not having se- that she was having sex with um, a messenger who worked for her, um, and this was getting public um, in England, and people were talking about it in the press. So he is talking about stuff that's going on in England, and he's making pretty funny jokes about it. Um, in fact, he left this stanza out of the first edition um, because it was just too... Um, he liked her, and it was sort of painful for her. Um, but that's the, those kinds of jokes are all over Don Juan. It's why it's worth reading an edition with extensive footnotes the next time you read it after you finish your first reading. Um, and Don Juan is going to be more and more about... Um, Stuff that's going on in the world Including as I mentioned before And I'm going to read you that section The death of Keats Things that are going on um, with um, Napoleon Things that are going on um, in Russia Various battles that are occurring and so on But so he writes um, to his As I say his English agent and financial His banker really um, Douglas Kinnard This letter um, in October of 1819 um, My dear Douglas, he writes, my late expenditure, that is, so Kindred obviously wanted to know why he's spending so much money. My late expenditure has arisen from living at a distance from Venice and being obliged to keep up two establishments from frequent journeys and buying some furniture and books as well as a horse or two, and not from any renewal of the Epicurean system, as you suspect. So he says, I'm not wasting money on partying as you think I did I've I've actually um, I'm trying to live more soberly I've been faithful in my honest liaison with Countess Guccioli. so he's been faithful to the woman that he's the cavalier Cervante to that is the woman that um, is married to someone else but he is her boyfriend and he's faithful that's great and can assure you that she has never cost me directly or indirectly a sixpence. Indeed, the circumstances of herself and family render this no merit. That is, um, she's rich, her family's rich. I never offered her but one present, a brooch of brillance, that is, of diamonds, and she sent it back to me with her own hair in it. I I shall not say of what part, but that is an Italian custom. So he's not telling her... He's not telling Kinnard where the hair in the brooch was from, um, but that it's an Italian custom. And a note to say that <coughs> she was not receiving—excuse <coughs> me—not in the habit of receiving presents of that value, but hoped I would not consider her sending it back as an affront, nor the value diminished by the enclosure. I have not—I had a—I have not. <laughs> people pass at the wrong time. I have not had a whore this half year. Confining myself to the strictest adultery. Why would you prevent Hansen from making a peer if he likes it? I think the garroting would be far the best parliamentary privilege I know of. Damn your delicacy. It is a low commercial quality and very unworthy of a man who prefixes honorable to his nomenclature. So he's saying, I don't understand why you're you're so sober and, and discreet. If you say that I must sign the bonds, I suppose I must, but it is very iniquitous to make me pay my debts. You have no idea of the pain it gives one. It's just not right. You want me to pay my debts? That's terrible. Pray, do three things. Get my property out of the funds, that is, out of um, um, an investment. Get Rochdale sold. Get me some information from Perry about South America. And fourthly, ask Lady Noel not to live so very long. Um, That is, his mother, not to live so very long. As to subscribing um, to Manchester, if I do that, I will write a letter to Burdett for publication to accompany the subscription, which will be more radical than anything yet rooted, but I feel lazy. I have thought of this for some time, but alas, the air of this cursed Italy enervates and disenfranchises the thoughts of a man after nearly four years of respiration to say nothing of emission. As to Don Juwin, and then this is the really great part of the letter, as to Don Juwin... That is the work, not the person. As to Don Juan, confess, confess, you dog, and be candid that it is the sublime of that there sort of writing. It may be bawdy, but is it not good English? It may be profligate, but is it not life? Is it not the thing? Could any man have written it who has not lived in the world and tooled in a postchaise? Postchaise is a kind of carriage. Um, and tooled in a post chase in a hackney coach in a gondola against a wall in a court carriage in a -a vis-a-vis that is in a small um, carriage of some sort on a table and under it I have written about a hundred stanzas of a third canto so this is um, we're we're beyond that now but it is a damned modest the outcry has frightened me I have such projects for the dawn but the cant is so much stronger than the cunt nowadays that the benefit of experience in a man who had well weighed the worth of both monosyllables must be lost to despairing posterity. So he knows what cant is like, people saying, oh, it must be virtuous, it's so important that we teach our children um, to be socially useful beings. You know, it's just basically political rhetoric. Um, he, Byron, has been the subject of both these monosyllables or has enjoyed um, an experience of both those monosyllables and um, he thinks it's terrible that he has this experience but it's going to be lost to despairing posterity After all, what stuff this outcry is La Rook and little are more dangerous than my burlesque poem can be Lalaruk is another, he, remember all the references to other oriental descriptions and how long and boring they are. Um, so Lalaruk is the most famous poem of that sort. It's by his friend, um, Thomas Moore. Um, and it's kind of based on Byron's earlier orientalizing poems. Um, yeah, I think we can stop there, but, um, I think it's a pretty delightful letter. And, um, what he's saying is only someone who's tooled in all those various places could possibly have written a poem like this. Um, So do you know the, um, do you guys know who Philip Larkin is? Um, 20th century British poet, quite wonderful. Um, Do you know how his most famous poem begins? Um, They fuck you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the thoughts they had, with the faults they had, and add some... Oh, dude, I'll, I'll They fuck you up your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had, and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man It widens like a coastal shelf So get out early while you can And don't have any kids yourself So that's his most famous poem Um, You might find it outrageous Um, It's supposed to be outrageous Um, It also seems like pure truth Um, But um, he has another very famous He doesn't have that many poems Um, His poems are great And there are not that many of them um, but he has another one which is also very famous which begins sexual intercourse began in 1963 between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP um, so the Chatterley ban was that D.H. Lawrence's novel Lady Chatterley's Lover had been banned as obscene and um, but then the ban was lifted when um, anti- obscenity laws um, were felt to apply too strongly to great literary works so Lady Chatterley was no longer banned that's the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP do people know what LPs are? what's an LP? Um, Long Plane explain to these good people who don't know does everyone know what an LP is? is it like a female? vinyl? Vinyl. yeah so it's the, it's the biggest kind of vinyl record um, a record is what is kind of like an MP3 on vinyl. Um, and um, so, so CDs came from vinyl discs, which are um, about eight inches across, and um, you can get about 15 or 20, musics, 20 minutes of music on each side, so that's long playing by the standards of the 1940s when I think they were first invented. Um, and the Beatles' first LP, um, that's, the first, that's their first full album, what we call an album, um, was originally called an um, LP, Long playing Record. So um, what um, um, Larkin is referring to is the sexual revolution or the beginning of the sexual revolution. Um, but, uh, and he says, actually, I skipped a line. The sexual intercourse began in 1963, which was a little bit late for me between the end of the Chatterley ban and the Beatles' first LP. So what he's saying is, I was just a little bit too old to take advantage of the fact that people started having sex in 1963, um, partly because of the coming of the pill. Um, but that's the way people tend to think of older generations, which is, well, it's really interesting that um, there were all these people who were never having sex with each other until people started having sex like fairly recently. Um, when they started having parties. Um, But what you can find out is that Larkin was wrong, that Byron actually had a lot of sex, and he had a lot of pretty um, acrobatic sex, and he had a lot of fun having all that acrobatic sex. Um, And it leads to these great poems, Um, and that's one of the great things about it. Um, Okay, so I also wanted to read you, since um, I read you that letter, and since we're not going on, um, a section from Canto 11. So this is um, <coughs> after the death of Keats. Um, so here he's um, talking about Juin again, um, who tends to drop out of the poem a lot, but always comes back. And he writes this is, if you have um, Don Juin with you, it's Canto 11, start at stanza 53. Juin knew several languages as well he might and brought them up with skill in time to save his fame with each accomplished belle who still regretted that he did not rhyme. There wanted but this requisite to swell his qualities with them into sublime. Lady Fitzfrisky and Miss Mavia Manish both longed extremely to be sung in Spanish. Um, so the one thing that Juin doesn't do is write poems. Um, he knows a lot of languages. He, by now, he's, he's uh, very debonair, but he doesn't write poems. However, he did pretty well and was admitted as an aspirant to all the coteries. And as in Banquo's glass at great assemblies or in parties small, he saw 10,000 living authors pass, that being about their average numeral. So he went to parties and he saw all these poets parading through the parties because poets at parties, don't you want to invite them? And um, there are always about 10,000 of them around in the world, that being about their average numeral. Also, the 80 greatest living poets, as every paltry magazine can show its. So he got to meet the 80 greatest living poets, the idea that there are 80 great living poets Byron's point is absurd um, there maybe are 80 great poets in the history of English um, and probably aren't but he got to see the 80 greatest living poets because every magazine had an, had a poet that they claimed was important publishing with that magazine so also the 80 greatest living poets as every paltry magazine can show its and then Byron reflects In twice five years, the greatest living poet, like to the champion in the fisty ring, what's the fisty ring, do you think? Boxing, Boxing. yeah, so this is a a, um, parody of the way that occasionally really bad poets will try to use um, old-style poetic diction to talk about something obvious and modern, the fisty ring. In twice five years, (coughs) the greatest living poet, like to the champion in the fisty ring, is called upon, is called on to support his claim or show it, although tis an imaginary thing. So every 10 years, um, the greatest living poet has to defend his championship, is what Byron is saying. And he thinks that's ridiculous because it's an imaginary thing. Even I, albeit I'm sure I did not know it, nor sought a fool's cap subjects to be king, was reckoned a considerable time the grand Napoleon of the realms of rhyme. So even I, who knew? But even I, Byron, for a while people thought I was the greatest living poet. Um, Who knew? I didn't. Um, I didn't care. Um, I didn't want to be the king of fool's cap subjects. Do people know what fool's cap is? Say it. Um, uh, there are, uh, pupils wear, no, so that's a dunce cap. Oh, okay. Fool's cap actually has nothing to do with fools. Okay. It's paper. It's um, it's pretty fancy paper, but um, not totally fancy. But it's paper um, of a certain quality. Um, in Moby Dick, have any of you read Moby Dick? So there's a hilarious moment. Did you know there are hilarious moments in Moby Dick? Good. One hilarious moment in Moby Dick. Um, I mean, it's not Byron, but there are, there are really funny moments. In one funny moment in Moby Dick, um, Ishmael, the narrator, um, is giving you, this is actually a chapter that you will think is boring if you don't read every word, is giving you various dimensions of whale bones and jaws and, and various things that he's seen as he's traveled around the world um, on whaling ships. And at one point he gives you how long some jaws are and um, how long some ribs are. And he gives you, he gives you their length in feet. Um, and he says, I, and he apologizes for not adding the inches. But he says, at the time, um, having no other fool's cap about except my own body. So he says, basically, I saw these things, but I had no paper. Um, the only thing I could write on was my own body. So I tattooed these um, measurements onto my own body. But I'm not putting in the inches, he said, because I was, at the time, preserving the rest of my own body in order to write down an epic poem that I was then considering. Um, So his skin is fool's cap. He writes down the um, dimensions, but only in feet in order to save space. Um, The way he saves space by saying um, Novocento or Trecento instead of 1900, 900, or 300 instead of 1300. Um, because he's going to write an epic poem on the rest of his body. So a way of saying that is that fool's cap is a funny word, because it means paper, but it does have that word fool in it. So, he didn't seek, nor sought a fool's cap subjects to be king, but he was reckoned a considerable time, the grand Napoleon of the realms of rhyme. But, Jewin was my Moscow, and Filerio, my Leipzig, and my Mont Saint-Jean seems Cain. So, Filerio and Cain are other poems by Byron. Um, June was by Moscow. What was Moscow to Napoleon? Anyone? Sorry? The, yeah, the scene of his defeat in the, war, in, in, um, the invasion of Russia. It's what um, the 1812 overture is about, Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture, which is, and it's what War and Peace is about. Um, Napoleon gets all the way to Moscow, um, occupies Moscow, Realizes that he can't sustain the occupation and withdraws with, I think, only 10% of the troops that he went into um, the war against Russia. He comes back um, with something like 90% casualties. So it was one of the worst defeats in history. Um, so Byron is saying, I was the grand Napoleon of the realm, realms of Rhyme for a little while, but then I wrote Don Juan and people no longer thought I was a great poet. And um, I wrote Filerio, and I wrote Cain. And la belle alliance of, or I guess he would say, la belle alliance of dunces down at zero, now that the lion's fallen, may rise again. So I've fallen, now the alliance of all those against me may rise again. But I will fall at least as fell my hero, nor reign at all, or as a monarch reign, or to some lonely isle of jailers go with turncoat Southey for my turnkey low. So Southey will be his warden as he goes off to prison. And then he goes on. Sir Walter reigned before me. Who is that? Walter Scott, yep. So this is a nice tip of the hat to him. Sir Walter reigned before me, Moore and Campbell before and after. But now, grown more holy, the muses upon Zion's hill must ramble with poets almost clergymen or holy. So we're seeing the beginning of Victorian niceties in poetry. And Pegasus hath a salmodic amble. So rem- remind us who Pegasus is? Yeah. Yep the winged horse of Greek mythology sacred to the muses who lived on Parnassus with them. And Pegasus hath a psalmotic amble. So Pegasus is now walking around to the rhythm of the psalms beneath the very reverend Roly-Poly who shoes the glorious animal with stilts, a modern ancient pistol by the hilts. Still, he excels that artificial hard laborer in the same vineyard Though the vine yields him but vinegar for his reward, that neutralized Aldorus of the Nine, that swarthy sporus, neither man nor bard, that ox of verse who ploughs for every line, Cambyses roaring Romans, beat at least the howling <coughs> Hebrews of Sibeli's priest. So he's now talking about even worse poets. Then and he's talking about them with mythological names. Then there's my gentle Euphues, who they say sets up for being a sort of Moral me So he's talking about a poet Who um, writes in the same kinds of forms As Byron does And with the same kind of inventiveness Or allegedly does So he's a sort of moral me He'd find it rather difficult someday To turn out both Or either it may be So it's going to be hard for him To be both moral and Byronic And in fact Byron thinks It's going to be hard for him to be either some persons think that Coleridge hath the sway, and Wordsworth has supporters two or three, that is, as, as the greatest living poet, and that deep-mouthed Boeotian Savage Landor has taken for a swan rogue Southey's gandor. So the writer and um, poet, Walter Savage Landor, um, thinks that um, Southey might be the greatest living poet. Um, Lander eventually becomes a character in Bleak House. If, you, if you've read Bleak House, um, Lander lived to be very old. He lived into the 1850s or 1860s and knew Dickens, and Dickens makes him um, a character in Bleak House. And then here's John Keats. This is the part that I was telling you about yesterday. John Keats, who was killed off by one critique, just as he really promised something great, if not intelligible, without Greek, contrived to talk about the gods of late, much as they might have been supposed to speak. So, Keats, as you will know, um, as you'll see, but as you may already know from um, the poem on First Looking to Chapman's Homer, is that a familiar title to people? Anyone know the poem? Yeah, so basically, can you plot summarize it? Oh, no, it's been a while. Okay, basically he says... (laughs) I know that I've read it. He says, um, I, I knew about Homer. People always talked about Homer. Um, and I knew he was great. Um, but I didn't know what he was like because I couldn't read Greek. Um, Keats came from a lower class background and never learned Greek. Um, and Byron was proud of knowing Greek, partly because it took him a long time to learn it. Um, he wasn't a good student um, in school, but he did learn it later on. As well, as you know, as Armenian. Italian and so forth. Um, so he's a little bit contemptuous of Keats's background, his educational background, but only a little bit. But Keats, in on first looking to Chapman's Homer, um, says "I'd often heard of the realms of gold, as he puts it, and heard about Greek literature and heard that there was one um, particularly great poet Homer. Um, that bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Those are the realms. Um, so I'd heard about the Greek poets. Remember the um, song that we looked at on Tuesday, The Isles of Greece, in which um, the, the um, poet is basically saying, well, Greece was the source of all this great poetry, but now it echoes in England, but no one in Greece is writing great poetry anymore. Nevertheless, Keats couldn't quite hear the echo because he didn't know Greek. Um, And then he says, but then one day I got Chapman's translation of Homer. So Chapman was um, pretty much a contemporary of Shakespeare's, who who was the first English translator of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And so Keats read Homer in in Chapman's translation, hence the title on first looking into Chapman's Homer. And um, then I was amazed by what I read when I first read this translation of of Homer Um, and it was I felt like an astronomer who sees a new star for the first time through a telescope Um, or like Cortez when he and his men first saw the Pacific silent he says upon a peak in Darien so um, that's how amazing it was to me to be able to read Homer And for Keats, he writes, as you will see, he writes a lot of um, poetry about Greek mythology. And um, his greatest long poem is the poem called The Fall of Hyperion, which we will read. Did anyone know who Hyperion is? Is The sun god. god, Good, nice. Um, The sun god in the story, the way Keats is telling it. um, Sometimes Hyperion is... Identified with Apollo, who's also the god of the sun. Um, You may recall in Hamlet, Hamlet says to his mother, comparing um, his father, no, I'm sorry, this isn't to his mother, it's in the soliloquy, comparing his memory of his father to his uncle, who is now king, he says he was so excellent a king, his father was so excellent a king, as was to this, the current king, Hyperion to a satyr. Um, so Hamlet is probably thinking of Hyperion and Apollo as the same. Um, Keats is interested in the war in which the Greek gods displaced the Titans, in which Zeus defeated Kronos, in which um, Saturn um, was defeated, in which the Titans, who were the original gods, were defeated by their children. And in that story, Hyperion is the last reigning titan after all the other titans have been defeated but he hears the prophecy and hears coming the new god Apollo who is going to overthrow him so Keats's um tried to write he eventually gave it up but he tried to write a great narrative poem um and what he did write is great and it's one of the things we'll read a great narrative poem about the defeat of um Hyperion by Apollo. Um, So he's writing this Greek poetry, and Byron is actually impressed by it. That's the point. Um, Wordsworth heard some of Keats' poetry and simply said dismissively, oh, it's a pretty piece of paganism. Um, But Byron had a better sense of how good Keats was. Shelley had the best sense of how good Keats was. Um, And Shelley was very, very generous to Keats. Keats didn't really like Shelley, but um, Shelley really tried to help Keats so John Keats who was killed off by one critique that is there was a very bad review and as we'll see and as I've already mentioned um, the mythology was Keats was so devastated by that review that he um, succumbed to tuberculosis which is what killed him Um, John Keats who was killed off by one critique just as he really promised something great if not intelligible without Greek contrived to talk about the gods of late much as they might have been supposed to speak. Poor fellow, his was an untoward fate. strange, the mind that very fiery particle should let itself be snuffed out by an article. Um, I think we can stop there, but this is basically the list of all the poets. And he says, yeah, for a while I was considered a great poet. Not anymore, but um, that's life. That's poetry for you. Um okay, what were your favorite rhymes in Canto Five? Remember we talked about the Simplogides, which I said was gonna come back. Did you have favorite rhymes? You better have. None of them struck you as particularly as you guys might say, sick? in the good way. Like, man, that is sick. (laughs) Do you remember what he runs uxin with the Euxin is a c off the bosphorus so did you guys actually finish canto 5 yeah i know you did um, all right go to let's just go to the beginning of canto 5 when amatory poets sing their loves in liquid lines mellifluously bland notice how that line is self describing in liquid, do you know what a liquid means in, in uh, linguistics what letters are the liquids the L and R, L and R are liquids so that they flow really easily into other, from other consonants Um, So we can say bleed or breed and they kind of liquidate into vowels. So they're mellifluous sounds. L's and R's are mellifluous sounds. And look what he's doing here. In liquid lines mellifluously bland. So notice what a liquid line that is and how mellifluously bland it is. So when amatory poets sing their loves in liquid lines mellifluously bland, and pair their rhymes. Okay, so look up, look up, look up. Give me a rhyme with loves. Good. (laughs) They're not a whole lot of rhymes with love. It's It's a pain in the butt fact about English. English poets, it's actually probably good for them, but English poets, Really don't have many lines They can rhyme with love many, lo- many words they can rhyme with love So whenever anyone says um, Oh what I feel for you is only love You fit me like a hand uh, Glove And I pray to God Who reigns Above And I don't know <laughs> What birds to call But does. <laughs> Because that's really about it. And then you have to go to off-rhymes like prove and move. And um, so love is a pain in English um, because it's hard to rhyme. And um, so whenever you see a, rhyme end, a, a line ending with love, you have a pretty good idea of where it's going to go. Um, so here he does it. When amatory poets sing their loves in liquid lines, mellifluously bland... And pair their rhymes as Venus yokes her doves. So what's he doing? He's pairing his own rhymes the way Venus yokes her doves. They little think what mischief is in hand. That is, if you write about love poem, if you write about love, you don't know what you're opening yourself up to. The greater their success, the worse it proves. So the better a love poem is, the worse the consequence. As Ovid's verse may give to understand, Ovid wrote very famously Dirty Love Poetry. Even Petrarch's self, if judged with due severity, is the platonic pimp of all posterity. That is, if you read Petrarch and read about his platonic love for Laura and so on, and you think, oh, love poetry, it's so great, it makes me feel how wonderful love is, Um, then that poetry is actually pimping you off to fall in love with people um, when you should be using your time for better and more pious purposes. I, therefore, do denounce all amorous writing except in such a way as not to attract so I'm against love poetry says Byron because you know I think people are having there's just too much sexual danger here and I really want people just to say no I therefore do denounce all amorous writing except in such a way (coughs) as not to attract plain simple short and by no means inviting but with a moral to each error tact formed rather for instructing than delighting and with all passion, in their t- with all passions in their turn, attacked. Now, if my Pegasus should not be shod ill, this poem will become a moral model. So, now I'm going to show you how dangerous love is, because that's what his purpose is. The European with the Asian shore sprinkled with palaces, the ocean stream here and there studded with a seventy-four. That is with a with a seventy four gun boat. Sophia's cupola with golden gleam. Anyone know what that is? What is it, MJ? No, say it again. Oh, is it wrong? I didn't hear what you said. Oh, the mosque. Yeah, the highest Sophia in Istanbul, or as he calls it, Constantinople. Um, here and there, um, Sophia's cupola with golden gleam, the cypress groves, Olympus <coughs> high and hoar, the twelve isles, and the more than I could dream, far less describe, present the very view which charmed the charming Mary Montague. <coughs> so that's the name of the ship, remember, that you is on as the Mary Montague. He then explains why he calls the ship that. I have a passion for the name of Mary. For once it was a magic sound to me And still it half calls up The realms of fairy where I beheld What never was to be So I thought that I would have a happy life All feelings changed But this was last to vary A spell from which even yet I am not quite free But I grow sad and let a tale grow cold Which must not be pathetically told So I'm starting to Meditate and brood, and that's wrong. This is supposed to be a funny poem. So now we get right into the poem. The wind swept down the Euxine, and the wave broke foaming o'er the blue Simplegades. Tis a grand sight from off the giant's grave that is a, um, a feature of the, of the seascape to watch the progress of those rolling seas between the Bosphorus as they lash and lave Europe and Asia, you being quite at ease... There's not a sea the passenger air pukes in turns up more dangerous breakers than the eukes So you're not happy with that rhyme? You don't think it's like worth the price of admission for this entire course just for that rhyme? Pukes in and eukes Okay, I think it is time to get to serious poetry, huh? I think that's just <coughs> a totally great rhyme. And I also think it's... Um. Here, just feign enthusiasm. Is that a great rhyme or what? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you really could can't do much better than that. Um, I think it's so funny how he's such a lauded poet and he rhymes pukes and. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he knows what he's doing. But it's also worth noticing <coughs> that he's um, really good at knowing um, his timing. And the timing here is what a lesser comic poet would do would be to reverse the lines. That is, the funny phrase is pukes in. It's a mosaic rhyme, right? It's pukes in and euxin. in. The funny phrase is pukes in, but therefore you would think that that would be the punchline. You would think it's something like, there's not a sea with more dangerous breakers than the eukes in or which a passenger ever leans and pukes in. Um, but that wouldn't be quite as good. And it's almost as though we get this phrase pukes in, which is a shock. <laughs> We're getting this beautiful description. The wind swept down the euxine and the wave broke foamy, foaming o'er the blue Plagades, Tis this grand sight from off the giant's grave to watch the progress of those rolling seas between the Bosphorus as they lash and lave Europe and Asia, you being quite at ease. There's not a sea the passenger air pukes in. And part of your mind is saying, wait, what? But you're also trying to get to the end of the sentence. <coughs> Turns out more dangerous breakers than the in, And it's almost as though the funniness of the, of the phrase pukes in catches up with your um, <coughs> surprise as you get to the, to the word that rhymes with it and reminds you of it and partly reminds you of it because the rhyme is so outrageous. Um, so he's just really good. This is something. This is a kind of comic timing that most comic poets don't do. He's really, really good at um, not waiting till the very end for the joke, um, because you wait till the very end for the joke, it's too late. Um, he's really good at having the joke kind of gather itself over the course of a whole line, and Pukesin is waiting to pop and explode into its rhyme with Uxin. Um, But, okay, let's go to a little bit of a more serious part of Don Juan, um, which is, um, again, part of his journalism. Do you remember when he tells a true story in Don Juan? Where that is? What it is? What it's about? He says, I'm about to actually tell a true story. Okay, well, this is... um, Let's go to uh, Canto Five, stanza 32. And the question is whether you feel better or worse about life after a meal. So you eat a meal, let's say you're really hungry, as Juan is, as the Englishman he's with is. You're really hungry, and you're, as the British say, feeling um, peckish. And... um, Sometimes when people are hungry, they get depressed. Um, I read a study somewhere that said that um, of the bodies recovered of people who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge, so about 10% of the bodies of suicides off the Golden Gate Bridge are recovered, um, not a single one had a full stomach. That is that um, all the suicides off the Golden Gate Bridge, as far as they can tell, um, were suicides of people who hadn't recently eaten. Um, the idea being that if you have a meal, even if you're feeling suicidal, if you have a meal, you'll feel a lot less suicidal. Um, so that's one theory. And um, that's Voltaire's theory. Voltaire says, in stanza 31, Voltaire says, no, it's not. Yeah, and of stanza 30. When dinner has oppressed one, I think it is perhaps the gloomiest hour which turns up out of the sad 24 hour Um, so all hours of the day are sad he's saying but if you eat and you're now feeling oppressed by having eaten that's the saddest hour of all Voltaire says no who's Voltaire? the philosopher and comic writer uh, most famous as a novelist for Candide Candide believes he lives in the best of all possible worlds but it's a pretty horrible world that he lives in Voltaire says no, (coughs) he tells you that Candide found life most tolerable after meals. He's wrong, unless man were a pig, indeed. Repletion rather adds to what he feels. So if you're full, you're able to think even more about the nothingness of human life. Um, Repletion rather adds to what he feels, unless he's drunk. And then no doubt he's freed from his own brain's oppression while it reels of food, I think, with Philip's son, or rather Ammon's, ill-pleased with one world and one father. So he's thinking of Alexander, um, and he's about to say why. Philip's son is Alexander, Philip of Macedon's son, Alexander the Great. I think with Alexander that the act of eating with another act or two makes us feel our mortality in fact redoubled. So the fact that we have to eat, the fact that we also have to shed, um, reminds us that we're mortal creatures. Alexander was thought of himself as the son of a god, except he had to eat. I think with Alexander, that the act of eating with another act or two makes us feel our mortality in fact redoubled. When a roast and a ragu and fish and soup By some side dishes backed can give us either pain or pleasure. Who would pique himself on intellects whose use depends so much upon the gastric juice? So, good, you're laughing. It's not like pukes in, but still. Um, So if how you feel depends so much on what you've eaten. How can you think that what you really are is an intellect, a mind? It all depends on what you've eaten. And then, as he's writing this, something happens. So this is the story. The other evening, "'Twas on Friday last, "'This is a fact, "'and no poetic fable. "'Just as my greatcoat was about me cast, "'my hat and gloves still lying on the table, "'so he's about to go out on a Friday night, "'he's put his coat on. "'I heard a shot. "'Twas eight o'clock, scarce past, "'and running out as fast as I was able, "'I found the military commandant Stretched in the street And able scarce to pant Poor fellow For some reason Surely bad They had slain him with five slugs And left him there to perish on the pavement So right outside his house And this is a fact, not a fable Right outside his house The military commander is shot dead They had slain him with five slugs And left him there to perish on the pavement So I had him born into the house and up the stair and stripped and looked to but why should I add more circumstances vain was every care the man was gone in some Italian quarrel killed by five bullets from an old gun barrel so notice how wonderfully prosy this narrative is that is he's in no way making he usually loves to make his rhymes vivid to you and outrageous but here again notice when he's changing tone, how he changes tone. Poor fellow, for some reason, here, just look up and listen to it as prose. Poor fellow, for some reason, surely bad, they had slain him with five slugs and left him there to perish on the pavement. So I had him borne into the house and up the stair and stripped and looked to. But why should I add more circumstances? Fain was every care. The man was gone. In some Italian quarrel killed by five bullets from an old gun barrel. So if you didn't know, if you just heard that and didn't know it was poetry, um, you wouldn't hear the rhymes. So here you have this Ottava Rima which is slamming you over and over and over again with A, B, A, B, A, B, C, C. But when he wants to, he can hide them completely. It still rhymes. But his tone, his control of tone, his control of diction is so good that he can make the rhymes as prominent or as, um, as self-hiding, um, as, as discreet as he wants to. I'll go on, I gazed upon him, for I knew him well, and though I have seen many corpses, never saw one whom such an accident befell so calm. Though pierced through stomach heart and liver he seemed to sleep for you could scarcely tell as he bled inwardly no hideous river of gore divulged the cause that he was dead so as I gazed on him I thought or said and here is Byron thinking what he thinks when he sees a person who's just dying just about to die can this be death then what is life or death, speak, but he spoke not. Wake, but still he slept. But yesterday, and who had mightier breath? A thousand warriors <coughs> by his words were kept, in, were kept in awe. He said, as the centurion saith, go, and he goeth, come, and forth he stepped. The trump and bugle, till he spake, were dumb, and now naught left him but the muffled drum. So, he was like um, the centurion in the Bible who everyone listens to, and everyone was frightened of him, but now look at him. All that's left for him is the funeral drum, the muffled drum. And they who waited once and worshipped, they with their rough faces thronged about the bed to gaze once more on the commanding clay, which for the last though not the first time, bled. So all his men, all his followers came to his deathbed. Um, They looked on the commanding, Clay, because he's just Clay like anyone else. And he's bleeding for the last time, though not for the first, because he'd been a a courageous warrior and he'd been wounded in battle. And such an end that he who many a day had faced Napoleon's foes until they fled. So he'd been one of Napoleon's soldiers. The foremost in the charge or in the sally should now be butchered in a civic alley that he who'd fought so well in battle should now be butchered in the alley of a town, not a a battlefield. The scars of his old wounds were near his new those honorable scars which brought him fame, and horrid was the contrast to the view. But let me quit the theme, as such things claim perhaps even more attention than is due from me. I gazed, as oft I have gazed the same, to try (coughs) if I could wrench aught out of death, which should confirm or shake or make, of faith. What does that last line mean? I tried to see if I could get anything by looking at death, which should confirm or shake or make a faith. What does that mean? Just paraphrase. <clears throat> um, whether out of his stuff we could. Yeah, so he's looking at the fact that this human being, <coughs> who has just been alive before eight that night, he was um, absolutely commanding figure, and now he's dead. And Byron is looking at this and trying to think, is there something there that could confirm your faith, make you think, I'm glad I'm a Christian? Or could it shake your faith, make you think, it's all pointless, life has no meaning, or something that could make your faith that if you'd been an atheist, you would look at this dead man and think the only possibility is that there's a heaven. So notice that it's a little bit like um, the famous um, dumb question about the thermos, which is if a thermos keeps cold things cold, why does it keep hot things hot? Um, so what does death mean? If you look at death, does it make you think, okay, there is a heaven, like a thermos keeping a hot thing hot? Um, or does it make you think, okay, there isn't a heaven, like a thermos keep, keeping a cold thing cold? Death is completely dumb. Death is simply there in its brute factuality. And for some people it will confirm their faiths, for other people, it will shake their faiths. Perhaps for still others, it'll change them into having faith. Um, for some, it'll it'll um, change people from being from having faith in God or in religion to no longer having it. To some, it will change people from not having faith in God or religion to having it. For some, it will confirm whatever it is they believe that there is a God or that there isn't. And whenever he sees someone dead, he says, I have gazed the same to try if I could wrench aught out of death which should confirm or shake or make a faith. But it was all a mystery. And then, here, look up for this because I think it's just amazing what he does here with his lines. But it was all a mystery. Here we are and there we go. But where? Five bits of lead, or three or two or one, send very far. And is this blood then formed, but to be shed? Can every element, (coughs) can every element our elements mar, and air, earth, water, fire live? And we dead? We whose minds comprehend all things? No more, but let us do the story as before. So I think that part, but it was all a mystery, here we are, and there we go. <clears throat> but where? Um, that's totally so surprising and so direct and so powerful. And then he ends this digression. So, you know, he's writing Don Juan, Canto Five, and then this guy gets murdered outside his door, and then he writes about that. Um, and then he says. It's unbelievable that we, whose minds comprehend all things, that we should die. Just like that. That our elements, what we're made of, can be marred simply by the brute substance of the world. Air, earth, water, fire. And we die. And then he says, no more, but let us to the story as before. So now we get a sense of why he's telling this story, which is a distraction. He talks about digression. (coughs) He talks about distraction. (coughs) But basically, the simple fact of life is here we are and there we go. That's what it means to be alive. And everything else is a distraction from that fact. So no more of this, he says, but let us to our story as before. And then we go straight to Juin and um, how he's bought... Um, by the sultana's servant um, and um, all the funny things that happen to him or that begin to happen to him um, in Golbaez's, um circle and then the sultan himself coming in, so it's all delightful it's all wonderful um, but still you get a sense of what dark thing Byron is looking away from to tell this hilarious story, um, and I, you know, I think it, I think it's worth feeling that depth. Um, I wanted to point out I quoted this for you before, but now you finally got to it. At line, um, start at stanza one thirty five. Um, so Juan now, unlike with Heidi, he forgets himself. With Heidi. that is to say, he forgets Julia. Now with Golbius, he's remembering Hayde. Um And uh, what's happened to her, do you remember? She, died. she, she dies. She, Sorry? Yeah, she died. She died. Um, she thought Juin had been killed, and that has such an awful effect on her that she kind of goes crazy, and then she dies. And who dies with her? Do you remember It's a, it's a neat, although very fast, moment in Canto 4. Um, this is Canto 4, stanza 70. So it started 69. Twelve days and nights she withered thus. At last, without a groan or sigh or glance to show a parting pang, the spirit from her past. And they who watched her nearest could not know the very instant till the change that cast her sweet face into shadow, dull and slow, glazed o'er her eyes, the beautiful, the black. Oh, to possess such luster, and then lack, that is, her eyes suddenly go blank. She died, but not alone. She held within a second principle of life which might have dawned a fair and sinless child of sin, but closed its little being without light and went down to the grave unborn, wherein blossom and bough lie withered with one blight, in vain the dews of heaven descend above the bleeding flower and blasted fruit of love. So what happened? Yeah. Yeah, so she was pregnant, and no one knew. Um, and what might have been born out of that was a sinless child of sin. Um, again, that shows Byron's um, view of what people regard as sin and what his view of what he regards as sinlessness. An innocent child might have been born out of Juwan and Hades' um, sexual relations. Um but she dies. Um, so now go back to Canto 5. Juan is resisting Gulbayez's um, come ons to him. She's coming on to him because it's something like the same situation with Julia and Don Alfonso, which is here is the last um, wife of a sultan, and she's interested in someone who's um, younger and more beautiful than her husband. And so gets him snuck in, looking like a woman. Unfortunately, her husband thinks he's a beautiful woman also. Um, That might be why you might want to keep reading. Um, (coughs) But so she says to June, you know, let's have sex. But he says, no, um, I'm loyal to Hedy. And so she's really angry. And so starting, let's start at, um, stands at 135. Her rage was but a minute, and twist well, a moment's more had slain her, but the while it lasted twas like a short glimpse of hell, noughts more sublime than energetic bile, though horrible to see, yet grand to tell, like ocean warring against a rocky isle, and the deep passions flashing through her form made her a beautiful embodied storm. A vulgar tempest twer to a typhoon to match a common fury with her rage, and yet she did not want to reach the moon like moderate Hotspur on the immortal page. Who's Hotspur? Um, he uh, held Henry IV or to be Henry IV or to Richard the Psycho, or to be Right, so he's the um, <coughs> antagonist in Henry Fourth, Part I, and a character whom everyone loves, quite a great character. What he isn't is moderate, His nickname Hotspur is because he's not moderate. But compared to her, he is. She didn't want to reach the moon the way Hotspur did. Her anger pitched into a lower tune, perhaps the fault of her soft sex (coughs) and age. So unlike Hotspur, she's just a milder person. The fault of her soft sex and age, her wish was but to kill, kill, kill. Someone else walks by. Like Lear's. Um, anyone know what he's quoting in Lear? Um, I, don't, I just know that it's like 10, kill, kill, kill. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually, I think, five. But he, when he's mad, he he says, and when I have stolen a pot <coughs> these sons-in-law, then kill, 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 kill. <coughs> so Byron's quoting King Lear, of course. Yeah. Is that the... the... Um, no actually it's later on when he's mad um, um, in a field of flowers Um, (coughs) so she's you know soft in her views all she wants to do is kill 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 and then her thirst of blood was quenched in tears a storm it raged and like a storm it passed passed without words in fact she could not speak and then her sexist shame broke in at last a sentimental then in her but weak but now it flowed in natural and fast as water through an unexpected leak. So she's weeping, and he uses um, a completely deflating um, simile. For she felt humbled, and humiliation is sometimes good for people in her station. It teaches them that they are flesh and blood. It also gently hints to them that others, although of play, are yet not quite of mud. So that's a pretty good line the 47% while made of clay, like the 1% aren't made of mud. That urns and pipkins are but fragile brothers, that is, that um, fancy urns and little cheapo glasses, they're both fragile, they're both brothers, and works of the same pottery, bad or good, though not all born of the same sires and mothers, it teaches, heaven only knows what it teaches, but sometimes it may mend, and often reaches. So, so this was good for her. But now she has some ideas. Her first thought was to cut off Julian's head. Her second to cut only his acquaintance. So, what is actually her second thought? To cut his acquaintance—that is, to cut him in the street. You know, when you're an enemy of someone, you pretend and you won't say hello to them. That's what it means to cut someone. It's very insulting. Um, that was her third thought. What was her second thought? Why the dash? Do you know when you're not saying? Or do you not know? Yeah. She wants to, uh, she wants to cut off his, uh, mana. Yeah. Yeah. She wants to emasculate him. So her first thought was kill him. Her second to cut only his, and then Byron cuts what he's about to say. And changes it to acquaintance. Her third to ask him where he'd been bred. (coughs) Her fourth to rally him into repentance. Her fifth to call her maids and go to bed. Her sixth to stab herself. Her seventh to sentence the lash to baba. But her grand resource was to sit down again and cry, of course. Okay, yeah, that's sexist, as is the next stanza. She thought to stab herself, but then she had the dagger close at hand, which made it awkward. So why does that make it awkward? I want to stab myself, but, oh, no, the dagger's right here. <laughs> why, why, is that an au- why is that awkward? Yeah. She, if she wanted to stab herself, it would be a lot better for the dagger to be across the room, Sir Jew, and could stop her. That would be the point. I'm going to stab myself. I'm going to go get that dagger. But I'm going to stab my... Oh, the dagger's right here. That's not so good, especially since um, her clothing is so thin. And she would succeed very easily. Um, So she doesn't. Um, All right. We've sort of hopped around a lot in Don Juin. um, But the point is that Byron is hopping around a lot. Um, But he's still telling a story. I think he's telling it really delightfully. What you will read over vacation after you catch up with Don Juin. um, What you should read over vacation. It's on the syllabus. Is... Um, Shelley, it's not the, fir- the earliest Shelley we're doing We're pretty much going through Sort of going through these posts chronologically Sort of um, <coughs> But Shelley having read Don Juan Wrote an amazing poem called The Witch of Atlas uh, The Witch of Atlas I've mentioned this I think the first class The Witch of Atlas um, She's a spirit She's a witch in the sense of um, a fairy um, a um, an amazing, delightful, wonderful non-human spirit, and Atlas is the region where the Atlas Mountains are in Africa. Um, so Shelley read Don Juan, and then he himself wrote um, a poem in ottava rima called "The Witch of Atlas." Um, so it's in the same form as Don Juan. It's an utterly different kind of poem. Um, it shows Shelley, who is master of the most extraordinary beauty in his poetry. Um, It shows Shelley just pulling out all the stops in simply describing um, as much as he can this supernatural being and the way she lives. So it's like a pure description of a supernatural world and it's just wonderful. But the thing to be thinking of, you've now read Julian and Madelow, you'll now read this other Shelley poem which... Um, is very different in tone, although has the same, just absolute, um, um, command of style that he does in Julian Madelow. Um, and it's just beautiful. Um, so as you read it, think about what makes it different as Rima from anything Byron is doing. Um. He did it because he'd been reading Byron. Byron was his best friend, and he'd been reading Byron and thought Don Juan was utterly amazing. Um, But he does something entirely different with the form. So that's something um, to keep in mind as you read it. Okay, you guys, have a good break. Thank you, and uh, see you in 12 days, I guess it is.